This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects is the free app that lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download Bloomberg Connects to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, the books they read, the music they listen to, the art and artists that are most preoccupying them. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Christina Qualls. Christina was born in Chicago in 1985 and raised in Los Angeles. She did a BA at the famously radical Hampshire College in Massachusetts, where she did philosophy and studio arts, and then did an MFA at Yale University almost a decade later in 2016. It's important that she grew up in LA because her family worked in film and television, as indeed for a while did Christina. She worked on Sesame Street, in fact, and then later was a graphic designer. Now, I can't see any clear links with Sesame Street, but the graphic design is important. She continues to use Adobe Illustrator in working through her compositions today, and there's a strong feeling of the planes of digital space when you look at the work, which are brought into physical reality in a way that resembles collage. But the most important elements of the work are bodies. The paintings are populated by figures which often appear to be naked and occupy these stage-like landscapes. The figures couple, they stretch, they fragment, they expand. Some bodily elements are in really close focus, others are hugely abstracted, and the painting of them really varies too. Some are realised in thick impasto, and others are much looser, almost still drawings. There's an extraordinary painterly flair about Christina's works and in a strong recent series shown at Pilar Corias this summer, I remember becoming completely transfixed by her depiction of hands, these hugely various marks that she used to describe them and a dizzying range of colour. There's a really dazzling sense of invention about Christina's paintings that I enjoy hugely. Now there's a lot of commentary on Christina's work that focuses on its eroticism and at times they do recall artists like Hans Bellmer and other surrealist artists where the sexual content is foregrounded in the work but Christina's actually said that she gets annoyed by too overt a focus on eroticism in her paintings. Instead she says she focuses much more on notions of gender and racial identity informed by her own everyday experience. She says she wants to, quote, dismantle assumptions of our fixed subjectivity through images that challenge the viewer to contend with a disorganised body in a state of excess. And that excess is really palpable, I think, in the work. These are images that teem with energy and extreme movement and feeling. Christina identifies as a queer cis woman and was born to a black father and a white mother. And this is really important in her work. And in fact, whenever she writes about her work, she makes her identity clear. And she says that she engages with the world from, quote, a position that is multiply situated. It strikes me that Christina's work still has that balance of the two subjects she studied in her degree at Hampshire College all those years ago. So I began by asking her, even though she's an artist today and her work is in the studio, if she feels that her inquiry is both an artistic and philosophical one. I studied philosophy in my undergraduate degree because I I knew I wanted to pursue art, but I've always seen art as being a medium to express ideas. And so I was fortunate enough to go to an arts 
high school here in Los Angeles. And so I got to spend four hours a day, five days a week doing art classes at the college level. So I was actually graduating from high school with like two years worth of arts credits for college. So I basically was like, I I know the fundamentals of how to draw and how to paint, but I don't know what I want to make drawings or paintings about. And so I thought it would be wise for me to take a pause before pursuing any more arts education and start to, I don't know, read a book and (laughs) figure out some, some ideas that interested me. And so I, I transferred around a lot and I ended up going to Hampshire College after trying out a lot of different colleges because it is a bit challenging to basically want to study everything that's not art, but ultimately to serve a studio practice because there's only so many hours in the day when you're also, I don't know, a student and wanting to party and socialize and stuff. So, um, so Hampshire was perfect for me because you can design your own Uh, your own major, basically. And so I was able to kind of put in all these different academic classes that could really start to hone in how I would try to talk about ideas that interested me without using painting or drawing. And ultimately, it was an interesting exercise because it really showed me the the limitations of language um, with talking about a lot of the things that are interesting to me because I mean, so much of what interests me are these ideas of like kind of simultaneous contradictory moments and in writing that's so complicated, but with a visual medium, it's, it really serves the idea of simultaneous and contradictory information, creating something that's beautiful rather than like super wordy. (laughs) Had you marked out broadly the territory that you wanted to explore and you are still exploring even then? Sort of. I mean, I I started off, I actually was originally almost going to major in uh, like a philosophy of religion type degree. I was really interested in, I mean, I think probably interested in the way that people tell stories and the people find, the way that people find meaning in their life um, and in their human experiences through, through religion. But, um, but I don't know, I think it was like after reading like Kierkegaard that I was like I don't think I want to I don't think I want to pursue this any further it's like too too much in a different direction but what I ultimately ended up writing my thesis on was about this um I ended up returning to this very personal subject matter for me which is a way of giving an account for my own racial identity and so that's something I've I've thought about since I was a small child and like kids on the playground are just like what are you and I would always answer like you know uh, my dad's black and my mom's white and kids would always be like, no, you're not. Or like, I don't know. It was just like, because I don't, I don't, you don't look particularly, um, like I would be half black. Uh, and oftentimes I'm seen as being white. And I mean, growing up, I also had a lot of friends that were biracial. And so, uh, and I knew that our experiences were really different. Like my best friend growing up was half Korean and half white. And we had very different, um, racial identity, even though we could both be considered biracial or mixed. And so my thesis work was really to kind of unpack that identity and and give an account for an identity that um, I I just, I felt like the idea of being mixed was such a vague position. And so I wanted something that had greater specificity and greater also understanding of an identity that's firmly rooted in multiple positions. So for me, it's an experience that is it's not this unified mixed experience, but it's this experience that's both 
rooted in blackness and rooted in whiteness and the contradictions that happen when you have that happening at the same time. And so that was something that interested me in undergrad and even before I could really put language to it. And now with my paintings, it's still sort of the central focus of how I think about my paintings is really just trying to explore this, this, this feeling of being within like a racialized body or this feeling of being within a gendered body and how oftentimes that can't be summed up with simple language because it is this sort of multiple situation. So yeah, it was helpful to try to explore that in writing when I was 22. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that both on your website and then in, in all the sort of official writing about your work. So for instance, in press releases, essentially the, the kind of text that you would have approved about your work. Mm-hmm your identity is is right up front and it always has been. And I'm intrigued by that. Did you ever consider not having that much information out there from the start? Because obviously, as you say, it's a key concern of the work. But mm-hmm. did you worry that people's interpretation of the work might be affected by having that very clearly stated up front? Yeah, I mean, I it's something that I'm starting to explore more now is, is how to discuss the works in ways that don't directly refer to identity as like the the sort of header topic of the work. Um, but for me, I was always concerned that the work would not be seen through that lens just because it is figuration and it's painting. And I like to use a lot of bright, beautiful colors and fleshy bodies. And, and so I, I didn't want the work to fall into just a purely aesthetic or sort of, I don't know, I I wanted to challenge the viewer to have a more active uh, role in looking at the work. I mean, I think it also kind of goes back to like being somebody who has had to continually come out as as not white, but then also having to come out as somebody who's queer. Um, And I think I just, I'm familiar with a process of always having to come out. So I think it's something that I was like, well, I might as well just come out on this like grand scale with the work. Um, and then kind of, I think, I think from there, it's sort of like with that understanding, then we can start to backpedal and start talking about things that um, maybe can't be tied down to a specific experience. But certainly, I mean, what, what I've always found with, with art and with working with my own work and also looking at other people's art or working with, um, with fellow classmates or with people that are currently students as I come in as like a visiting lecturer. But I've, I've have noticed that the more specific people are with their own experience, it's, it's actually a lot easier to enter that work as a viewer. Like you'd think it'd be the opposite. You'd think that like, if you were to do something super general, it would be actually like accessible by everybody. But I've found that whenever I personally, or I've seen other people try to attempt this sort of generalized experience. It feels very sort of like cliche or I don't know. It's just, it's hard to enter the work. There's a barrier put up by that, by that idea of trying to appeal to everybody. And I think as soon as you are really specific with your, uh, like your own very strange, particular way of seeing the world and experiencing your own sense of self, that's actually when I've found moments where people that on paper have very different um, sets of identities or experiences from my own. But that's really the moment when people can find common ground in the work is when I'm super specific to my own experience. So I think with art, it's like 
I always try to put out as much language as possible through things like this podcast or through writing, through artist statements. But ultimately, I think its power is that it exists as a visual object that you don't have language and these sort of preconceived ideas in a, you know, in a very like pure sense of an art viewing experience. But um, it does allow you to enter a conversation that maybe you wouldn't think was yours to have. That's interesting. And I'm really interested also in the long tradition of figurative painting as a white male territory mm-hmm. and you know is that also part of it you are you are entering into a territory which still all these years after <laughs> women artists did start to make an impact in that territory still you know that's mm-hmm. that the burden of that long history is still carried mostly by white men mm-hmm. and therefore you know it was it also a reaction to that in a way to state to state again you know here I am, and this is a, this territory, figurative painting, can be explored by diverse peoples, basically. Yeah, well, and I think also for me, my work, I always, um, you know, when I, when I describe it through statements or through uh, interviews, I, I often will talk about how it's, I see them as being portraits, not of looking at a body, but portraits of being within your own body. And so I think also that I mean, that is a big difference between, you know, like somebody who identifies as like a, you know, 1800s white man, you know, like a very kind of strict, rigid form of identity, like no idea of like, you know, what, what's their gender identity. It's just like, I'm a white Western man painting a uh, female nude. I mean, that's, that's a process of looking and observing um, somebody's body from the outside. And so with my work, I'm really interested in what, my my sort of lived experiences of being in my own body. And I do work with a lot of models. I mean, I do a lot of figure drawing still. Um, and I was taught, I was taught from an early age how to draw the figure from like a very traditional, um, it's kind of like a rigid <laughs> sort of more art historical way of, of learning how to draw the figure. Um, and so I think it's really kind of taking that canon of art history and, and education that's been passed down through the centuries. But then for me, um, you know, being able to sort of imagine myself occupying the bodies that I'm also painting. Um, and I think just kind of having an awareness of what it is to be in your own body. Because, you know, being in a gendered body or racialized body or queer body, it's very different from looking at one of those bodies so take for example just my gender like as a female painter like thinking about what it is to inhabit my body it's like not every part of my body is gendered all the time you know like how do you gender like an elbow and also how how does age influence that read of gender or how does different body shapes being like really fat or really thin how does that influence how we read gender and I think we just have an experience of being within our own body that's very different from an experience of looking at a body. And so I think that's the exciting thing about more people, more different identities and <laughs> genders and races and um, all of that being able to paint the figure now is that you're just get, you're getting to experience different embodiments of the artist and different works. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Um, it's so funny. It's like all my answers are like so like 
<laughs> cliche in a way, because I think that there are these certain artists that that young people get exposed to if, if you're fortunate enough like me to have been exposed to art from an early age. Um, and so for me, it was people like Gustav Klimt and like Egon Schiele. I have like still like a million of those books from <laughs> people in my family being like, oh, yeah, she draws the figure. Here's another Schiele book. Um, and then like I loved like Frida Kahlo and stuff. Um, and I saw a an exhibit of uh, Kusama's early work at the museum that I lived next to growing up. So I saw that, I think, when I was, like, 11, and I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I mean, there. so, yeah, nothing, like, super indie or avant-garde in that, but, like, kind of all the standards that you'd expect. Um, but, yeah. So do you carry any of those artists through with you now? Do you still look at those artists that you were discussing now? I do I I forget sometimes to look at them because it does feel like such a I don't know <laughs> such like a mainstream list of artists or like you know even people like Matisse or like uh, George O'Keefe people or David Hockney is another artist whose work I looked at a lot as a kid um, I think just also from visiting museums so I I sometimes forget to look at them and then I do again and I'm like oh yeah these are these are cool. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do continue to look at their works. Um, and I think that influence, too, one of the things that fascinates me is how work um, can kind of start in a, like a museum setting and then kind of get disseminated through culture. Like, you know, you don't see like the the um, the painting in the museum. You see it like influenced in like the pattern on a scarf or something that's been kind of taken up by a fashion designer and then gets put into like a thrift store and (laughs) then it gets copied by a painter like me. And so I kind of love the way that my influences are sometimes the original source, but then sometimes they're like five sources down the line, (laughs) like a copy of a copy of a copy. And tell me about historical artists that you do look at now, which historical artists influence you the most today? Yeah, I was trying to think about which historical artists really do influence me today. Um, cause what I really love doing is just sort of getting lost in a museum. Like it was so great when I was at Yale for grad school because they have two really excellent museums that are also in sort of like a bite size, <laughs> sort of like, it's like they have like a mini Met essentially. And then they have, uh, the Yale Center for British Art and they're both very manageable museums, um, which I kind of love because then you really can get lost in there. They were always like recirculating their massive collections. So, um, I mean, as somebody that was taught figure drawing and figure painting in very traditional methods, I mean, I, I did spend a lot of time looking at like all the, all the like old masters, of course. And like, like last year I was in Rome and it was such a treat to see like, I don't know, all the like Caravaggio paintings like in real life are just like so cool um but yeah I mean I I couldn't say there's like one specific influence it's more just the kind of joy of like spending time in a museum and trying to like I don't know discover things or like (laughs) roaming the halls and just kind of getting caught up like in some old like Dutch still life and being like wow that detail's insane (laughs) And what about living artists? Which living artists do you most admire? I get a lot from my like immediate community of artists. So I really do admire people who I would consider to be my peers right now that are making art uh, that are also really engaged with um, 
just a real investment, I would say, like in social practice and with kind of contributing to the communities that they're a part of. And so, you know, artists like Lauren Halsey or Jordan Castile or like Paul Sapoya, like, like just really like looking at artists who, who are investigating like a dynamic art practice, but then also, you know, working with younger artists and finding ways of being, yeah, just really engaged with, um, with like a lot of social practice, I think is something that, uh, it, 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 I do really admire that with the artists that I'm sort of coming up with right now. And then, I mean, I guess he was <laughs> recently living. I, I really, um, was super influenced by a lecture that Jack Whitten gave when I was in grad school shortly before he passed away. Um, and that just really helped open up how I think about painting and the materiality of paint. Um, and so that was like really meaningful. I, there, there was so many <laughs> incredible artists that, uh, I got to learn from while in grad school. Um, Leslie Hewitt's another one who, I mean, I'm often really influenced by work that doesn't look like my own work. If something is figurative painting, for example, I get really caught up with how it was made. Cause I'm like, Oh, like how, like what, how do they do that process? And so I'm not really looking at it like a viewer, I'm really looking at it like somebody that's trying to tinker with the process. And so I, I love like an artist like Leslie Hewitt because the um, the work is quite different from mine in terms of medium and composition, but um, the content I really find a connection to. And so that I think, again, kind of comes back to that idea of thinking of art really as a medium for expressing certain philosophies um I, I oftentimes will connect with like the the content of the work more than the the visual relation to my own that's fascinating because of course you were part of this exhibition called radical figures at the Whitechapel gallery in london uh, at the start of 2020 and that's in fact ended up lasting a very long time into 2020 because of covid <laughs> but but one of the things about that obviously was and obviously the media, people like me, will get caught up in that, is that there is a new definition of what figurative painting means today. And you were exhibiting with lots of people of the same generation as well as from different generations. So um, I wonder what that experience was like, because, you know, it, in, in a way that was that was a show which was, in a, in a sense, trying to define a zeitgeist within figurative painting. Yeah, and I mean, I love all the painters that were in that show. Um, and it was such a... I don't know, I was like such a fan when I found out the, about the show and was, was first approached about being in that exhibition. I was like, it's so exciting to be with all these people that like I've just been a fan of for so many years. Um, but I do think that there is something about being sort of close to your own practice and having a hard time kind of taking that step back and really getting to experience um, a painting the way that I think a painting is really meant to be encountered, which is kind of as this holistic object, material-based, image-based thing that you encounter, and you can really sort of explore and weave your way through it. And that's something that I think just because it's what I do in my own work day in and day out, I have I have a harder time kind of like letting myself fully be immersed by a figurative painting without wanting to just imagine being in my own studio painting and so for that like actual like immersive art experience I always look for like 
video and photography and installation and sculpture, like things that are like, where, where it's just one step removed from my own process. But it is exciting right now to, to be in a moment where there is so much um, just brilliant figuration out there and so many people talking about it in a different way. I mean, it's such a such an old medium and, and subject matter. And so it's, it's exciting. I mean, I think, you know, we live in bodies, so we'll always be interested by seeing bodies. Um, people are always like, Oh, did it die? Or is it coming back? I'm like, I don't know. It's, you always have a connection to seeing another body. That's right. So uh, one of the things I'm intrigued by hearing you say, talking about influence and actually talking about influences coming from other sources or being sort of um, mediated through other materials or whatever is is what you have pinned to your studio wall do you have images of other artworks do you have other forms of imagery on the wall around you that you might make reference to yeah I mean I I I have kind of like a funny collection like looking right now at my my window uh which has like a windowsill with just a bunch of random things like a uh this weird kind of ceramic giant seafoam green crab magnet, <laughs> like a and like a mug that's shaped like a Geordie LaForge from Star Trek, and like right, like a like a prank of like rattlesnake eggs that's actually like a rubber band tied tight around like a piece of metal, and so it's like super kind of like kitschy. There's like a ceramic fake banana that I found in Trinidad um, when I was visiting there with my nana, so. This sort of like, I don't know, this sort of visual kind of kitschiness or things that are meant to look or simulate something that they're so clearly not. Um, but then I also, I have, um, like, I love having like a really fun bathroom in my studio at all times. Um, and so in there, there's like, I have posters from shows that I really liked going to while I was at Yale. So like a Joseph Albers poster and this uh, poster about like black uh, pulp art. Um, and then I also have like a little, like that little blue, uh, female Matisse form in my studio bathroom. Um, and that's like a postcard form and like the George O'Keefe clouds, um, kind of all over my studio. I think about those pieces a lot. Um, I have like that, uh, painting of Ophelia, like in the bath or I always think of it as in a bathtub. It was a postcard that my mom had in, in our China cabinet growing up. And so I feel like, I don't know, I always have like figures in water. So <laughs> it's kind of still like just your typical like museum art postcard shop collection combined with, um, I don't know, just tchotchkes that yeah. I guess, what do they say now? Like that gives me joy. <laughs> but it's interesting you say that because it makes me think about your painting and the way that you have the sort of a collision of languages mm -hmm. between the for instance the patterned form and the shapes that aren't bodies the way all those things are in a sort of form of motion even though we're looking at a static image yeah can you say something about about that because it seems to me that the it's not just the bodies that are in movement but the whole scene is in movement yeah I mean I think that comes from my being really just open and receptive to a whole range of experiences throughout the day and trying to really bring that into the work and so I often like I will get sometimes like uncomfortable about how to answer like who who are my favorite artists because so often I mean I do find a lot of um, joy and inspiration from visiting a museum and, and visiting a gallery but I find just as much from rummaging through a thrift a thrift store or like a tag sale or um, just driving around town. Like I love living in Los Angeles because there's so much 
that people do with just the way that they do hand-painted signs in the city um, and the way that they sort of decorate shops and the way people decorate their front yards in LA is always so fun because it's like crazy topiaries that people cut into all sorts of things. I mean, I don't know, growing up in Los Angeles, it's like a city of sort of making your own reality out of kind of like a bunch, like a big hodgepodge of different influences that are all able to sort of exist in a city that has such a backbone of like artifice, I guess, of being like my, my, my family all moved out here to be in the film industry. So like I grew up also on like back lots and stuff. And so I think it's really that sort of like constructing your own sort of visual reality that I find really engaging. That's what I love about being an artist is that you can really let all of those things enter into your sort of like consciousness or subconscious or whatever you want to call it. And then because you're practicing a, an actual physical skill that you've been developing for years and years, you're able to do something like paint the figure or work on a composition. And it has all these formal and technical um, skill sets that you have to activate, but you can kind of do it without thinking. And that allows for all of these other things that have entered into your mind throughout the day or the week to kind of filter through this technical skill and it allows for it to be, um, I don't know, kind of something beyond what you could actually sit down and plan ahead of time. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. The app offers access to numerous cultural institutions through a single download. Among the guides on the app is one dedicated to the Guggenheim Museum in New York and regular listeners to A Brush With will know that when I asked Rashid Johnson which museum he visited most frequently he said the Guggenheim and spoke in detail about that most unique feature of Frank Lloyd Wright's seminal building, the spiralling ramp at the heart and how he navigates it. On the Bloomberg Connects app, you can hear Guggenheim curators and indeed the museum's visitors talk in depth about Wright's creation and find out that Rashid was in fact following the route that Wright intended, beginning at the top of the ramp and working one's way down. But nowadays, we learn, most exhibitions are curated beginning at the bottom of the ramp and moving upwards. And of course, you can also explore the Guggenheim's collection with audio descriptions of famous works by Brancusi, Manet and Picasso, among others. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at app.bloombergconnects.org slash a brush with. Let's move on to other cultural experiences beyond art, or it might even be an art, art experience, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but which cultural experience changed the way that you see the world? I mean, I do think growing up in Los Angeles, uh, especially when I did, I moved here with my mom when I was six years old in 1991 and basically like my entire childhood was a really kind of turbulent time in Los Angeles because there was the uh the riots in 1992 the LA riots which were um so you would have just arrived then right so you you would have been (laughs) seven or something when those happened yeah 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 I was super young I mean it was a really still like um it really impacted me a lot I mean I was my neighborhood now my, my neighborhood, my mom and I <laughs> would never have been able to afford it. Um, but at the time, in the early 90s, it was a quite um, affordable and diverse neighborhood because um, it was in mid-city. And so we were super close to the LA riots or I guess, I mean, like now we would call them like the LA uprising. Um, and I think kind of growing up sort of with that background of like police brutality was something that... Um, 
has continued to influence me um, and sort of, I think also just the cultural clashing at that time and, you know, still today, obviously, but because I, I was really close to Koreatown as well, which was a big part of the of the 1992 uprising. And so there was definitely also tension between this, like newly people who were who were newer immigrants from Korea in Koreatown. And my my elementary school was like 80 percent Korean. So um, so I think, yeah, just growing up sort of with this sort of the L.A. kind of having many different cultures and, and immigrants and experiences but then there is because it's a driving city and it has so much sprawl the sort of segregation of the city and so I think the and like the experience of it all through a car is also interesting and so I think that has has sort of led to a big part of how I think about things and there was like a big earthquake in 94 and then there was like OJ Simpson and like it was just it was kind of a crazy time to be in LA <laughs> as a kid and just be like well I guess every two years there's a reason why I don't go to school for a few weeks. <laughs> so um, it's interesting that you mentioned about police brutality there and obviously you, you know um, what's happened this summer with George Floyd's murder etc the Black Lives Matter movement um and then at the same time, COVID. And I know in your work, you've directly referred to the experiences of COVID. But have you had to formulate also how you've responded to Black Lives Matter in your work? So in a way, are the two things both present in your work? Uh, and if so, how? Yeah, I mean, I've been sort of raised with the knowledge and the experience of um, police brutality and and um, and sort of like a a complicated relationship, I guess, to the experience of uh, Black identity in the United States. Um, as somebody who, by all technical uh, <laughs> technical use of of the term of being Black in America, I would be Black because um, there's been historically this idea of like a one drop rule, like. Because whiteness is not a race in America or has not been historically, uh, you know, made itself visible as a racial identity as much as blackness um, has been uh, sort of forced into this role of being this sort of positive racial identity and whiteness has always been in relation to other races. So in that sense, I've always been, um, I think, aware of myself as a person of color, but then as somebody that moves through the world in a body that's often seen as white, I I am very aware and, um, you know, I'll be the first one to, to say that I don't have that experience of Black identity in America of having to, you know, because white people so often see me as being white, I don't have the, um, the experience of moving through a country where I know that white people will uh, target me or criminalize me based on the way that they see me. If anything, I, I have to bear witness to a lot of racism uh, as somebody that's assumed to be kind of part of whiteness rather than apart from it. And so, um, and so it is something that I've had sort of a complicated relationship to is, I guess, like where I'm positioned in a conversation about Black identity when the, the, when the focus of that conversation is about uh, the legibility of blackness by white America. 
And so this summer was, of course, like no exception for that. And um, it's it's been interesting to me also to experience like how white people continue to see me as white, even though I'm very much like forthcoming about being racially multiple in my identity. And I, I think so much of that also points to this way that whiteness really protects itself by seeing itself as not having, not encompassing a spectrum of experience. Like that's often how I see myself as being much more closely related to blackness is that blackness has a sort of spectrum that it accepts. So all of that to say that in my work um, this summer, and certainly, I mean, with all of my work, I, I make it uh, with no with no predetermined sketches or plans for how I'm going to paint my paintings. And so I am influenced by these sort of longer narratives of, of relationship to how to paint the figure and my own experiences. But then I'm always directly influenced by what is happening immediately in my my circumstances when I make a painting. And so a lot of the decisions about like color or pattern um, or composition or sort of the tone I want to strike does come from things that are happening around me. And so a lot of the paintings I made, especially over the summer, they were about these sort of, I don't know, I think I think in general, the, the work I've been making this year have been, they, they've sort of been hitting more of a chord of sort of this deeper, sadness um and the sort of grieving process and then um and at the same time the sort of potential for there being like ascension or um or moments of of light or progress because i think a lot about how how people across the board have been grieving um kind of on this massive scale whether it's from the uh just crazy numbers of deaths from coronavirus or if it's the you know, the deaths and that are related to either extreme poverty or to um, to the disproportionate number of people of color that are dying of coronavirus or um, the disproportionate number of people of color dying from police brutality and systemic racism. And so I think that there is a sort of massive grieving. And then regardless of if that's touched you or not, then there's this sort of grief for this way of life that we all sort of miss having. Uh, while we're all sort of stuck in our homes and seeing all this upheaval. But I do think that for a number of people, it's complicated because there's this moment of grief about all this loss, but then there's also this awareness that so many of these systems were never set up for a person of color to succeed or uh, to be able to thrive and prosper in, in this country. And so I think that there's like this complicated thing where it's like, you know, we we have this, there's this, sadness of this like kind of loss of a way of life but then it's also like I I do find moments of optimism because I think that the whole system was sort of you know not built on a foundation that was ever meant to support me as like a queer person of color woman um you know so it's like we we have a lot to to do but there's also like things were not great before like that's why things were able to so quickly fall into disarray um, with a pandemic. It's all been influencing my work and I think kind of leading to this sort of deeper uh, moment of sort of like the somber quality to the to the recent paintings, um, but then also this sort of spark of uh, potential in the works. Let's talk about literature. Um, which which books or writers do you return to? Um, oh, I always, well, I guess like, so the other thing I have on my walls is like a ton of writing, like handwriting that I do. Um, and 
I used to write directly onto my paintings, but I found that that was sort of too, I don't know, you see an image and writing next to each other and you just, you want to, I'm always fascinated by the way that we are conditioned to read things or see things. And so you do have a tendency to want to have that be the caption for the image. And so when I, when I took that away from the paintings, I still wanted to write by hand because I love writing and, um, like the physicality of writing as well as the content of words and the way that words can have like puns and double meanings and stuff. So anyway, I keep a lot of this writing on my studio walls and the sources, again, it's, it's always this sort of pop culture and then combined with kind of like this high culture. But, um, but I always do return to um, the work of Audre Lorde, um, and the work of James Baldwin are both really have been influential to me. Um, and yeah, the, the poetry, particularly of Audre Lorde, is something that I'll keep up in my studio a lot. And um, but then it'll be like, you know, pop music as well. I love like the way that certain words can have again, like this idea of mourning. I love the way that mourning can be a time of day or it can be like a moment of grief, uh, depending on how you spell it. And so a lot of times my titles will reflect these, um, these instances found in either poetry or literature um, or music or television. And so pretty much every title in, in my show right now, you could probably find in like a Spotify playlist somewhere. You've already talked a bit about pop music, but which music or other audio do you have on in the studio when you're making work? I have a I have a playlist that I started like in 2017, which I just keep adding to every time I hear a song that I like. Um, and then I just kind of keep it. It's funny. The first song that was put on there was this song um, Every Day by Aesop Rocky. And so it's um, so the, the playlist just automatically is called what? the first song is, which is every day when I listen to it, like every day. Um, so yeah, it's kind of fun because it kind of goes through like different stages. I think of, cause I, I will then like start the playlist kind of later and later, even though I just keep it all on there. So now I like usually start around like track 55 now and it's like all these like really cruel, like breakup songs on there. Um, I don't know. I, I listen to like a lot of, uh, like St. Vincent, a lot of my titles kind of come from songs um I it's like really embarrassing but I also really like painting to like really epic musicals <laughs> like like Les Mis or um like Miss Saigon or like I don't know it's like very embarrassing but I think it's something about like I, I when you're painting it's like you kind of need to snap back into a rhythm and so what I like about these sort of cheesy musicals is that they are so epic. If you listen to a live one, also they include like applause, which is sort of like, <laughs> it's like a good motivator to have somebody cheering you on. Um, and then also it's like, uh, I just love the way that the, the, the music kind of weaves in and out of songs. So it's more, it's kind of like listening. I mean, it is literally like listening to a, a story, um, which can kind of hold your attention. Because when you paint like for eight hours a day, five or six or seven days a week, you start to run out of things to listen to. I'm wondering, just hearing you saying that about the weaving in and out, one of the qualities about your work that I most like is that is this 
way that there are sort of elements of high focus and then more more blurring or elements where where figures appear from within aspects of the architecture of the painting so tell me about that about this i that you know the sort of weaving in and out of figures the sort of focus and unfocus if you like of the of the figures and the space yeah i mean i always think about the way that the way that you do look at a painting and so like you know, sometimes people will ask, like, how do I know when a painting is finished? And for me, it's really when I can sit and look at my painting for a really long time and my eye continues to move and see new things in it, even though I'm the one that made it, I should know all the things that are in there, but I sometimes don't. Um, and so I, I do think a lot about, like, what you can see from the work um, based on different durations of viewing, because I think a lot about how we, you know, again, sort of thinking about inhabiting a body or moving through the world there's there's we want to find legibility in things and there's a certain way that we've been conditioned to uh to read an image or to read a person or a situation because we're constantly looking for ways of pattern finding and recognition finding and ways of just sort of being able to have these shorthand viewings of something so that we can make sense of it really quickly um because if we spent every moment of our lives laboring over all the nuances, we'd never do anything. But the problem with that is that then we make a lot of assumptions based on how we've been conditioned to see rather than what's actually in front of us. And so um, so with my paintings, I always try to play with that sort of first viewing and then including all the information in a piece so that the longer you look at it, um, if you choose to be engaged with the work for a longer period of time and to really sort of challenge what is actually in front of you rather than what you assume is there, it can be more complicated uh, the longer you spend with the work. And so, like, I don't know, like if people are like, sometimes people are like, oh, is it like always like two women kissing? And I'm like, well, is it always two women kissing at all? Like, is it ever that? Like, because if you look at it carefully, it's like, you know, there's there's certain body parts that are gendered, but there's certain body parts that aren't. And some that are gendered only if you assume that what you're looking at is like a cisgendered person or somebody who's not queer or somebody who's not fat or somebody who's not old. Um, and so there's certain ways that we make those assumptions. And then it's also like, you know, there's very rarely naturalistic skin color in my work. Um, it's usually these crazy colors. Um, and there's always like, if you were to add up like the limbs and body parts, it never quite comes up with a set number of people. There's always like a leftover, like a remainder arm or leg or 40 fingers or something. So, um, so there's all these things where it's like, I think it's, you want to see a legible image, but I try to present a painting that has certain things come into focus immediately. And then other things, the longer you spend looking at it can challenge that initial read of the work. Tell me about your studio life. Is, is there a particular discipline in your working life that you see as a kind of essential ritual? I do try to write a lot. Um, I I have a writing practice that's really not for anything other than myself, um, though it's sometimes something that I'll incorporate into um, ways that I discuss my work. I'm always trying to revise my account of myself, my account of my work, and my observations of the world, because I think it's something that's always changing. And it's I think it's important to sort of be forthcoming with how you see things, but also to be open to the fact that that idea will be old fashioned and probably wrong and ridiculed several years later. If you know, if things are going well, if things are 
progressing and people are being critical thinkers. They're hopefully building on older ideas. And, um, and so for me, I try to really uh, take that responsibility seriously. And part of that is just doing an ongoing writing practice where I'm, you know, revising my artist statement and revising how I think about my work through language. Um, and I think also just spending time away from my studio is another important ritual for me. So I really value spending time with my wife and my pets and my friends and family uh, and driving around the city and, you know, just doing things that are not at all related to the art world. Because ultimately, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make work that's only for people that have studied art for years and years and years at the best schools. Like I want to make work that can engage with people that um, maybe are more intimidated by going into a museum or, um, or aren't familiar with all the, the art historical painters. And so for me, it's really important to spend time not only around artists and museums and my own studio practice. Um, so that's an important ritual. Going back to the writing and language, one thing I was really struck by looking at your paintings is this notion of sort of certain kind of core elements of language, but then more experimental elements too. So you have um, a broad lexicon of marks to a certain degree, and some are consistent across every painting, and then others seem to come from nowhere, like a, a new kind of mark. Is that, is that quite an intentional process in a way you have building blocks of language, and then you have other kinds of language which are more experimental. Yeah, I love that way of kind of seeing the paintings. I hadn't thought about it quite that way, but um, but it's certainly true. And I mean, part of it is that I'm I'm always challenging myself to. I mean, I I need to stay interested in my own paintings, and so there's certain elements that are consistent throughout my work. But I really have tried since um, since about the middle of grad school. I've tried to resist the the urge to kind of pin things down into a into too many set rules with what would make it part of a definitive series of work. I see it as sort of an ongoing practice with, like you say, these building blocks. And I'm always trying to challenge myself to invent something new with each painting. And so I think it's sort of like, I mean, sort of like, you know, any experience you have where you, you take with it all the knowledge you have from before, and then hopefully you add a little bit of something new because you don't have to work so hard on figuring out what you've already learned in the past. And so for me, it's always like each painting, I'm, I'm using things that maybe in the painting before was a brand new invention or experiment. And since I don't do sketches or anything, it's, it's all done on the canvas. I really am figuring things out as I, as I paint them and spending a lot of time really just observing my own work along the way and challenging myself to kind of come up with new connections or, um, you know, more experimental ways of using the paint. I mean, I think one of the benefits I have is having such a traditional um, education in drawing and then a much newer introduction to painting. And so I think a lot of the fundamentals of how to render a figure have been drilled into my mind from like the age of 12 when I first took my first figure drawing class. But I entered grad school in as a 29 year old, like not really knowing how to stretch a canvas and not knowing anything about like color theory. So a lot of the elements of paint and stuff I think about, I think in a more sort of playful experimental way, because I'm not as tied down to a tradition of how to use paint or canvas. 
but I am tied to a very rigid tradition of how to render the body. And so I think that sort of allows for this experimentation in the works that can allow for there to be this sort of like vocabulary that you can become familiar with the more you become familiar with my work. And then there will be something there where you can be like, oh, I haven't seen that before. But that's like my same experience of painting it where I'm like, oh, huh, okay, cool. I'm going to try that again. <laughs> If you could live with one work of art what would it be i you know i recently asked this question and i i just like panicked and was like oh that um that clouds painting that george o'keefe made just because i i always really like visiting that painting when i go to the art institute of chicago it's like in the stairwell um and i love how like wide it is but i don't know i probably would just kind of want to live with some like any random like old dutch masters painting because they're like so intricate um, and you just would learn so much from looking at something like that every single day, I think. I love the art I do live with. Um, like I have this really great print that um, uh, Shabalala self uh, and I went to grad school together. And so we traded with each other in grad school and I have like a really beautiful print of hers that's in my living room that I, I don't get tired of looking at ever. Um, I think like there's certain pieces where it's like you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something about it that just holds a room so beautifully um, and holds your attention over and over again. And that's like what makes it a brilliant piece of art is that <laughs> it like, I don't know, you don't stop looking at it even when you see it every single day. But I also, it's like such a huge responsibility, I think, to own a piece of art. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know if I should own like, masterpieces because I do I, I value having had a like a lifetime of being able to access works in public institutions um that are not in somebody's house <laughs> so I don't know so I'm like anything I really love I'm like happy that I've been able to see it in public <laughs> so I don't want to own it and lastly what's art for <laughs> yeah just some simple last question <laughs> um I think it's a, just a way of thinking through ideas. I think art is really at its best. It's experienced as a process uh, rather than as a static object. In a way, it's like the art object. I mean, it is so important to, to encounter it in person, but in a way, it's sort of all the experiences that led to that object coming into being and then all the experiences that can happen after it's out in the world. And so... I think that it's, um, you know, as soon as we start thinking of art just as the object or the image, it can become this, like, commodity. It can become something that has, like, value ascribed to it, like a literal, like, price that gets put onto it that could be traded in an auction. And, you know, then it just becomes, like, a currency. But, like, it's like, you know, it's, it is like currency in the way that, you know, money is not just the dollar bill that you have, but it's, like, everything that <laughs> comes before and after that. It's not really the object. It's more like all these different transactions. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I love making art because I can think through painting um, and I can think through ideas that I've tried to do through language, but I think the linear quality of language has always stood in the way of that. And so it's just a way for me to think. And then um, ultimately, then I kind of have this talking piece <laughs> that then I can talk to other people about and make connections with other people about. Yeah, it's just this thing outside of myself that can allow me to process ideas and um, and then can generate conversations with people that are interesting and 
um, I don't know, can have interesting input with this kind of object that can mediate the conversation. Christina, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great chatting. Christina Qualls in Likeness is at the South London Gallery between the 19th of March and the 4th of June 2021 and an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago opens on the 17th of April and continues until the 29th of August next year. Images of the exhibition at Pilar Corius this summer that I mentioned are available at pilarcorius.com. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With and our other podcasts, The Week in Art, wherever you're listening. And do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack. And the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcast are Julie Mahouska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentall, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jala. Huge thanks to Christina Qualls. Join us on Friday for the Week in Art and on Wednesday for the next episode of this podcast, which I'm excited to say is a brush with Ronnie Hall. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.